0: I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September second, two 2014. Coming up, could stormy weather from the sun mean the end of life as we know it?
1: There might be outages of power for not just hours or even a few days, but possibly weeks Months or possibly years.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Every memory comes with a feeling. Recalling exams or accidents can bring back panic and fear. Remembering baby showers and weddings often evokes happiness. So what if you could swap out the negative feelings, triggered by a traumatic memory, for more positive ones? Scientists at MIT have done just that with mice. The researchers used male mice that had been genetically engineered to express a light-sensitive protein. This allows scientists to use laser light to activate neurons in the mice that are associated with a specific memory. As for the experiment... First, the researchers imprinted these mice with activities that built strong memories. Half got a happy memory, flirtations with a lady mouse. And the other, unlucky half, got zapped by an electric shock. The scientists identified which memory neurons these experiences had activated. Then they made a switch. Using lasers, they stimulated those neurons as the mice were exposed to the opposite event. So the previously zapped mice now frolicked with female mice, while the researchers stimulated the memory neurons that previously brought those mice feelings of pain. And when those same neurons were stimulated later, instead of acting panicked, the mice now showed pleasure. In other words, positive feelings had replaced the negative ones. The team hopes their study will lead to better treatments for depression and PTSD. The study was published last week in the journal Nature. Conservative Christians and people who believe in climate change don't tend to travel in the same circles, but Katherine Hayhoe is part of both. She herself says that, quote, It's a little like coming out of the closet, admitting that you are a Christian and a scientist. Hayhoe is a prominent atmospheric scientist at Texas Tech University. She studies climate change and what it means for people and the natural environment. She was a lead author of the 2014 3rd U.S. National Climate Assessment. As a conservative Christian, Heho works to bridge the divide between scientists and the conservative Christian community. She was recently named to Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World list. And she will be speaking at Boulder's Chautauqua Forums this Friday. Her talk is titled Climate Change with Mind and Heart. It will start at 7.30 Friday night. In the Chautauqua Auditorium. There is a fee. Find out more by Googling Boulder Chautauqua and Hey Ho. And another science talk this Wednesday night. How on Earth's frequent host and show producer Joel Parker will speak at the Denver Science Museum about the satellite known as Rosetta. Rosetta, the comet chaser, is reaching the end of its 10 year space mission to catch and land a robot on a comet. Rosetta will be the first spacecraft to accompany a comet as it enters our inner solar system, observing at close range how a comet changes as the sun's heat transforms it into a luminous apparition that has frightened and inspired people for centuries. In addition to being a member of our KGNU Science Show team, Joel is an astrophysicist and director at the Boulder Office of the Southwest Research Institute and Deputy Principal Investigator of the ALICE UV Imaging Spectrograph on board Rosetta. During his talk, Joe will describe how this project is helping us garner new knowledge about the origins of our solar system and, perhaps, life on Earth. This Wednesday's talk begins at 7 p.m. There is a fee. Find out more by Googling Rosetta and Denver Science or check our website, howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to KGNU, How on Earth. Stay tuned for more about solar weather. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. Hurricanes, floods, tornadoes. We all know that stormy weather can threaten life and property. Recent headlines warn about a new threat, stormy weather from outer space. This July, the New York Post reported solar flare nearly destroyed Earth two years ago. In August, the London Daily Examiner announced, Apocalypse Now! Killer Superstorm could destroy Earth at any moment. PBS NewsHour warned the $2 trillion economic risk you have not heard about. Now that it's September, our prediction is more gloom and doom headlines. What they all refer to are coronal mass ejections from the sun, better known as solar flares. And while the alarming headlines have been spiraling out of control, Boulder astrophysicist Dan Baker says the basic warnings are not a hoax. Baker directs CU Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. He's widely quoted around the world as a leading expert on the dangers from solar flares. Here's Dan Baker explaining his concerns about solar flares.
1: My part of the story about the end of the world revolves around solar storms, very powerful solar disturbances that could have dramatic effects on human technology and most notably on the power grid that supplies uh, nations of the world.
0: Now, you are mentioning some things that tell me it's not really the end of the world.
1: You're absolutely correct. Talking about the end of the world, sort of a convenient shorthand for talking about very severe effects on advanced technological countries like our own.
0: Well, let's go back 300 years before there was any electricity. Would anyone have noticed that they were in the middle of a solar flaring storm?
1: They would. They wouldn't have known why, but we've known for probably since humans have been looking up that there are in certain places at certain times on the earth very powerful events. We know them as aurora. About 150 years ago, the aurora were immensely powerful. The aurora were seen as far south as Cuba. These are places that ordinarily don't see aurora. This was really big news to them. In the northeastern United States, during that 1859 storm, people could read newspaper by auroral light. the Victorian age, the technology primarily was the telegraph. The storms that occurred in 1859 had profound effects on the telegraph, led to sparking fires. But we, of course, didn't have satellites at that time. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have an extensive power grid. What I've been thinking about, my, I and my colleagues have been thinking about is, uh, if we had a storm, what would be the effect on our society and on our technology? And we are very firmly convinced that there might be outages of power for not just hours or even a few days, but possibly weeks, months, or possibly years.
0: How long would we be sitting in a solar storm for this to be a serious event?
1: Typically, these kinds of storms last for half a day or a day. But in the process of having this powerful storm, you're inducing such intense currents in the electric grid that you start to cause the complete failure of large transformers. An extremely high-voltage backbone of the power grid could be knocked out of commission for weeks, months, or years. The transformers, they'll heat, they'll burn up, and then one will lose these house size kind of transformers that cost many, many millions of dollars to replace, and that there's not, you can't go down to Home Depot and buy one of these for immediate replacement. This is the reason to be concerned, not just because there's a night with beautiful aurora, but what is really happening on the power system and all the dependent technologies.
0: How often do you think this is likely to happen in a big way?
1: People are asking that all the time. What's the probability that this is going to happen in the next year, in the next five years, in the next ten years? Two years ago, the sun was undergoing something of a maximum of activity, but it was a pretty mild maximum, and people were saying, oh, gee, we haven't really seen a powerful disturbance. The Earth hasn't been hit by one of these for a long time. And then we had a very appropriately placed satellite called Stereo A. That spacecraft saw a huge outburst from the sun. For all practical purposes, looked very much like the event of 150 years ago. It came blasting out and we saw what the full force of an event like this would be. Now we ask the question, what if the Earth had been at that location instead of the stereo spacecraft? What would have happened? And the answer was, effects on technology undoubtedly would have been very severe. And this really got a lot of interest from a lot of people, saying, oh, gee, this event occurred not 150 years ago, not some moldy old records, but it really occurred in modern times with modern observations
0: how many minutes would we have?
1: We would know something like half a day in advance of whether this is really coming toward the Earth. Then we're down to less than an hour of warning of whether it's going to be really the most severe kind of storm or not.
0: What do you think we could do to reduce the amount of damage that this might cause?
1: The best things we could do would be, one, to understand how bad can it get. The second thing is what core parts of the power grid and other things should we protect in order that we can rapidly recover from a powerful solar storm. The third thing is, let's war game this, let's sort of play it through how this would really affect our technological society. And fourth, how can we build better transformers, better components to weather the storm?
0: If things are off the grid, are there ways that some of the decentralized systems for power and communication might actually become more robust at a time like that compared to the centralized?
1: Very possibly so, yes. But this is part of what I'm talking about for wargaming. Individuals who had solar panels on their own homes might be more immune to these kind of large-scale disruptions. But on the other hand, the whole system as a system might be becoming even more susceptible to disruption because in the good old days of only large power generation systems, you could do something that I think you alluded to before, which is, okay, we think we know this uh, storm is going to affect the northeastern part of the United States. Maybe we could shut down systems there, divert power around that area until the storm passed. The rolling blackout. The rolling blackout. That kind of strategy might actually have been thought to be beneficial, or you could crank up more power in other sectors and really work around the key problem Now, with a much more distributed system, there's a lot less central control and might be less able to mitigate those effects. And so what we really need is really playing out scenarios with different assumed kind of configurations of the power system. You know, it takes time for the wheels to turn on these kinds of things. And so it took us some months, even a year, to get our paper out into the literature. And then other people started to look at this and started to do their own analyses of the same kind of event and started to find support for the views that we had expressed. But I think it was mostly that policymakers then started to say, gee, you mean we don't have to go back to the early 1900s or to the late 1800s to see an event like this, but there was one that we just uh, narrowly missed? Oh, well, maybe we should think more seriously about this. The policy wheels have been turning over the last uh, year or so.
0: And it sounds like the policymakers are also thinking, gee, if an event like this happens, right. can we plan ahead so that we don't get thrown back to the 19th century in terms of what works?
1: Right. You might call something like this a space Katrina or so. You know, I mean, it's bigger scale by far than Katrina, but it's the kind of event where people had not really thought it could happen. It happened. Now policymakers are thinking, gee, if this happened on my watch, this wouldn't be good, would it?
0: Dan Baker directs CU Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics. We'll give hot links to further information on solar flares at our website, howonearthradio.org. But first, stay tuned for another look at the dangers from solar flares as we talk with a national expert on space weather prediction who says we actually have some safety in place. Stay tuned. (laughs) You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. Today here at KGNU, we've been looking at the risk from stormy weather, not from hurricanes or tornadoes, but from outer space. Coronal mass ejections are known in the popular press as solar flares. 300 years ago, these might not have been much of a problem, just pretty lights in the northern lights, aurora borealis. But today, some scientists warn that if a major solar flare hit the Earth head-on, it might disable our global power systems for days, maybe weeks, maybe months. But actually, we do have some safety precautions in place already. And with us to talk about those is Doug Biesecker. Doug works in Boulder at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Space Weather Prediction Center. Doug Biesecker, welcome to KGNU.
2: Good morning, Shelley. Yes, I work at the Space Weather Prediction Center here in Boulder, where we are the nation's official source for space weather alerts, watches, and warnings.
0: How about it? If this were to happen tomorrow... What could we do? Would, be, would we be okay or not? If a solar flare, a big one, started to erupt from the sun tomorrow, would we lose power for months?
2: Well, if everybody plays their part, then pr- probably not. The, the most important thing is that first we have to observe this event erupt on the sun, and, and we can do that. And that will give us 12, 14, 16, 18 hours of warning and and with that realert not only the power grid operators who can start to take action but but the government FEMA uh and the white house so that they can start to put in procedures uh in place at, uh for recovery and what the power grid operators can do is is they can they can bring extra power online they can uh defer maintenance to keep critical parts of the infrastructure that are known to be susceptible to, the, to these storms, you know, available, or what they can do is they can change the topology of the grid. And In, instead of moving power from, say, New York to Boston over this line, that is the most efficient way of doing it, they'll reroute it a different way that's less efficient, but better from a, a safety perspective.
0: Well, Doug Biesecker, has this actually happened? Have we had? Is this all theory, or is this something that we've actually had to put in practice now and then?
2: So the, the power grid gets alerts from us quite often. At low levels, they're seeing small disturbances on the grid. About once every 10 years, they get an alert from us that says something big, not of the magnitude that Dr. Baker was talking about, but something that could knock transformers offline.
0: Let's give an example in Quebec. What was it in the 1990s, the late 1980s? There was a place that was very susceptible to a big solar flare.
2: That's right. We had a blackout in Quebec in 1989 from one of these storms. In 2003, Sweden and South Africa both were, had transformers damaged from another solar storm. So this is something that power grid operators are familiar with what we're talking about here and what dr baker is talking about as a storm even larger in magnitude could we handle it that's what everybody's trying to find out one thing that's changed in recent years is power grid operators used to have always had ways of dealing with these storms. The government now mandates them. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission requires the power grid operators to have procedures in place for dealing with these storms and is also mandated that they examine, they model their system to understand how these currents get in there and how this will will damage their system.
0: Okay, let me try to picture this. A solar flare happens. We don't really see it except for the pretty northern lights with our human eyes. But it creates kind of a static in the Earth itself, which starts to heat up and cause static in the transformers. Does, Does this, I may be using the wrong word here, but does this, the key thing is, does it heat up transformers slowly, or is all of this powerful energy like a lightning strike. Could it hit a transformer, kapow, like that, and just take it out?
2: Good point. It, in general, it's going to be a slower process. That, that What happens is you get, you induce extra current into the transformers. This causes overheating. Uh, they can actually turn on cooling systems on these transformers to help to preserve them um, they can bring on additional staff to do the monitoring and make sure they have people in place to shut down any system that begins to overheat.
0: What about an airplane flying in the air with lots of passengers on board? Would it be in danger?
2: When we're talking about power outages, when you're in space, you're fine on your flight, and the airport itself is going to have emergency power. If if there was a major blackout, I'm sure we could get all the planes out of the air safely.
0: Okay, so we could probably get the planes out of the air safely. I keep picturing that when the power grid goes down, then there are backup power that, that that local power supplies right next to where the need is actually get less interfered with by these storms than a big power utility plant.
2: Well, there's a truth to that. Uh, the parts of the grid that are impacted are the very high voltage, seven hundred and fifty kilovolt network that that crisscrosses the country
0: that's those big transformers that are the size of houses that help switch the power around
2: that's right so the the distribution part of the grid the solar panels that dr. Baker talked about that that is not going to be impacted
0: okay are you as worried as dr. Baker
2: Uh, I think dr. Baker has a prudent message Uh, what this is what we call a low frequency high consequence event if we do nothing, if the, the grid is normally operated with to be as efficient as possible. If you threw a major storm at that grid, it would probably collapse. If you took the time to reconfigure the grid from a safety perspective, then would you protect the grid completely? Probably not. but you know, would we be out for hours and days? Quite probably, possibly. Um, but we think we can avoid the the months or years nightmare scenario.
0: You used that word. You're, you're comforting me with what you're saying, but I'm also remembering that you used a word collapse. What what does it mean for a power grid to collapse?
2: Well, that literally that there there's everything from a cascading collapse in the in the in the Northeast in um, 2003. There was a a power problem in Ohio that caused a cascading failure all across the Northeast, I mean, there were parts of New York without power for two days. You can literally, you know, cause widespread outages that that would extend from from
0: Maine to Florida and and east to Illinois. Okay, so it's important for the power experts and the ones in charge to watch that it doesn't cascade if there's a power outage in one area that it doesn't cause power outages across the grid. That's right. Then I've got another question for you. That's about the satellites that watch this. Right now we have one satellite that's about one million miles from Earth, the, the brave sentinel that's keeping us from uh, being in the dark about this kind of event happening and the chance that it will be a big one. Are, are we going to get any more satellites out there to help with this project?
2: We are. So right now we rely on a sixteen year old NASA research satellite known as the Advanced Composition Explorer. We've been using that to put out reliable warnings to the power grid for sixteen years. In four months, in January of twenty fifteen, we'll be launching the first NOAA operational satellite. It'll replace the NASA research satellite with a with a the first of a string of monitors that will always be there protecting
0: and so we'll have more data and better data once this happens, plus one of your colleagues is going to Washington, D.C. to serve on a task force about all this.
2: That's right. There's many things that that will happen. I mean, if a storm were to happen tomorrow, would the power grid get alerted? Yes. They'd get alerted so many times by in so many different ways. Um, they would know something real is happening. But it could also lead to possible confusion. So one of the things we're working on is alerting procedures and uh, to make sure that everybody is going to be notified in a way that is most efficient for them.
0: Well, thank you for joining us, Doug. Doug Biesecker is with the Space Weather Prediction Center that's here in Boulder. And good luck with your work protecting us and the power grid.
2: Well, thanks for having me on the show.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Joel Parker is our executive producer. I produced and engineered this show. Additional contributions from Susan Moran and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from BBO. Visit our website, howonearthradio.org, to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 4479911 For how on earth the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender.